Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is about helping you capture the power of therapeutic practice and performance practice in one integrated system. More and more today, reconditioning professionals are becoming sought after in human performance environments everywhere. The R-Pro series is a four-step process to becoming a reconditioning professional. The first two are completely online, so you can get started immediately from the comfort of your own home. R1 Foundations is about you learning the building blocks of assessing and improving functional movement. R2 Designs is empowering the process even further, so you can assess and improve any human movement and integrate your work into performance programming. The R3 Collab is about you experiencing the full power of the process in a living lab, troubleshooting your issues, fixing your problems in real time, and gaining real confidence. The R4 Mentorship is about exposing your knowledge, refining your approach, and learning through a powerful feedback process so you can be the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. For more information on all our course offerings, including our landmark personal development program, Empower You, please check out Reconditioning HQ dot com today and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 off any one of our course offerings. I'm excited to have my friend Brad Thorpe and his company Isofit involved with the Leave Your Mark podcast. His mission is the same as mine, helping human beings live better lives. He doesn't want to see you let an injury force your retirement from the sport or activity you love. For decades, physiotherapists, athletic therapists, and chiropractors have recommended isometric strength training to help speed up rehabilitation from injury and included it in return to sport protocols. I know I use it often in my own reconditioning process. Whether you're goal is performance enhancement, injury prevention, or injury recovery, the all-new Isofit MSK takes athletes from the therapy room to the podium. To learn more, visit www.isofit, that's isofit with a P-H-I-T-M-S-K.ca, and remember to use the discount code Leave Your Mark. three separate words to save $500 off your Isofit MSK purchase. I want to thank Greg Lawler and Matrix Fitness for being a long-standing sponsor of the Leave Your Mark podcast. Matrix is indeed leaving a mark on the fitness and performance industry today. In the last 20 years, Matrix has become a global brand that employs over 7,000 people worldwide and delivers over 500 products catering to the medical, fitness, and athletic performance markets. Matrix has a wide range of programming solutions, and they are dedicated to creating deeper partnerships with their customers everywhere. Matrix has many ways of making a relationship work for you, the customer, and offers rental and various financial incentives to assist the financial constraints of adding premium equipment during this time of inconsistent revenue. For more information and free consultation, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA. That's teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA today. 
Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the honor of speaking with Mark Lefebvre. Mark is an athletic therapist and professor of athletic therapy at Mount Royal University. Mark's passion for athletic therapy and injury rehabilitation began during his undergraduate degree in physical education and master's degree in science at the University of Manitoba. During this time, Mark worked primarily with varsity football and hockey. After graduation, he worked as an athletic therapist for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and in private practice at the Pan Am Sports Medicine Clinic. In 1994, Mark came to Alberta and served as the head athletic therapist for Mount Royal University, helping to create Mount Royal's Wellness Center and then continuing on in a faculty role in the athletic therapy program and athletic therapy program coordinator in 1998. In 1994, Mark also began working for the Canadian Professional Rodeo Sports Medicine Team and has worked for the team for over 25 years, serving as its president from 2007 to 2014. Mark and his research colleagues have collaboratively presented over a thousand research presentations at national and international sports medicine and education related conferences. Mark has served in numerous roles with the Canadian Athletic Therapist Association, including serving as its president in 2002. He's been the recipient of a number of awards of recognition during his career and was most recently inducted into the CATA Hall of Fame. Most importantly, Mark has been married to the love of his life, Lynn, for over 30 years, and he is the father of three amazing grown-up women who he is most proud of. I am excited to have him on the show today. Welcome, Mark. Well, thanks for having me. That sounds uh, cool, especially I, I get a little chill when I get to hear about my family, too. Sounds like you actually did something with your life. That's good. I like that. <laughs> it also sounds like I'm I'm done. <laughs> Wait, I'm not done. I'm not done yet. No, I'm only just starting. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's actually a real um, honor and uh, a privilege to have you on, buddy. Uh, we've known each other for a very long time. In fact, most of what I just read to you, I uh, knew about the the beginnings of a long ago. Yeah. But let's segue to back before I actually ever met you. You know, you grew you grew up in Manitoba, or where did you actually grow up? I did, I did. Actually, I'm I'm American. I, well, I'm a oh, dual okay. citizen. I was born in the states. Uh, my dad is American, and we moved to Canada when I was six. And so basically, uh, I am. And I, but I didn't come become a Canadian until I turned just before forty. Uh, it was really important really? to me to finally, yeah. For whatever reason, I just delayed and delayed, and it didn't mean anything to me, really. I thought I, I just considered myself Canadian. I wore the Canadian shirt whenever they played the U.S. I, but it, you know what's funny? It's some For something clicked for me when I was 40, just before I turned 40, like, I need to vote. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to vote. I, I said, really? I need to vote. Wow. And, and so it's become super important to me, uh, ironically. So, And I still wear the Canadian jersey, of course. So yeah, that's an ironic I, uh, fact. I never knew until today. That's pretty yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. So, but I do consider myself Canadian for sure. Um, and I, uh, I did grow up in Winnipeg though. And that's where, yeah, I basically spent my youth and I I've spent the second half of my life so far, basically in Alberta. So mm -hmm. I like to ask people uh, kind of when they were kids, what they sort of dr dreamed about being. Did you ever, you know, sit on the, on the ground? I used to stare, lie on the ground, stare up at the star stars and think about, you know, what life was going to be like one day in the future. Did you do that? And if so, what did you dream of? Honestly, I was a pretty happy, happy-go-lucky person. And I didn't 
think too far in the future. And, Mm. um, you know, I thought about careers like police or fire, traditional things, but uh, I loved playing sports and I loved physical activity and I just used to play things all the time. And so honestly, I was so busy playing and having fun in my youth that I didn't think much about the future. Um, Mm. And frankly, it wasn't until my third year university until I sort of woke up and went, oh, I need to think about a life. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, I I didn't think too too long and hard. Um, again, I knew that um, at, around the second or third year of university that I really wanted to be doing something physic- within the physical activity realm, possess something, um, but I didn't have a, this magical vision. And I didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of role models that went to university and did things like both my parents were kind of working class people. Um, and so I didn't really know what to expect. Uh, and, and that's where my wife really did influence me, to be mm. honest, like her and her mother influenced me to go to university. And I'm like, yeah, sounds good. So, oh, you know, so I, you've lo- known Lynn for a long time then. Yeah. Yeah. So we met yeah. in grade 12. She okay. went to a different, uh, different high school than me, but yeah, we've been dating. We just celebrated our 30 year anniversary, uh, of marriage, but, uh, we started dating in, in high school. So wow. you know, we've known each other a long time and, wow. and she did influence me to go to, well, I was gonna, I applied to university. I was one of like three guys in my graduating class that applied to go to university. I was like, sure. U of M, U of W, whatever. In fact, I was going to go play basketball at U of W and, uh, but Lynn went to U of M. So that's where I went. I went to U of M, follow the woman. <laughs> Tells you about how focused I was on what I wanted to do, right? <laughs> so you, you basically, it's got a lot of happenstance, a lot of influence from this woman that you've fallen in love with. Mm-hmm. And so what, why do you choose to get into so-called sports science and therapy and things, things like that? Yeah. How does that switch flick for you? Well, you know, again, I wasn't really that focused my first year university. I went into arts, um, didn't know what I wanted to do, took some courses, you know, did, I, I did okay. But like, and now all of a sudden I started to have, had to study. Well, what's that all about? Whoa. Um, so, and, and I had, I remember my biology class, it was the lowest grade I received in all of university. And it was a just a, a total weeder course, and I'm sure it was my only C plus that I got ever. But it was, it was, it, you know, it just kind of shifted my mindset. Oh boy, you really need to get down, buckle down. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. So actually, at the end of my my first year of university, my parents were going to go to Australia on an exchange, and so I said, I'm going to go with you. So basically, I took a gap year of sorts. Um, not, but I didn't go for the whole year. I just went for probably eight months, nine months. Um, and you know, Lynn ended up joining us out there when we were out there and I worked a bunch of really horrible jobs and I worked, uh, I, you know, my claim to fame is that I loaded every single yellow pages for those young people out there. Don't know what that is. (laughs) It's where you advertise things like the internet. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, I low and and this is Melbourne, Australia, 2.5 million people uh in that city alone and so it was a really thick book i worked at a book binding factory where i loaded every single one of those onto a crate at the end of a conveyor belt that gives you a lot of time like you're not it's not a lot of cognitive stuff going on in there so you're a lot of time to think do you want to be doing this for the rest of your life 
I did that. I washed dishes. I dug ditches. I mean, you name it, I did. It was all this work under the table in Australia. And it kind of pushed me in the right direction. Uh, and I wow. buckled down. And I, you know, I don't think I got a, a, a low grade after that. I had low grades before that, but never be after. So, so Anyways, you, took, you I, took the year off, you went there, and then you came back and went back to this, the same school. Went to U of M, and then I went yeah. to, uh, yeah, I went to Phys Ed, and, and this is where Glenn Bergeron uh, started to influence my life. And so if you, you know Glenn, of course, and I'm sure mm-hmm. he, he tells the story mm-hmm. that, that I was super keen on going into athletic therapy in grade 12, and I'm not sure that's exactly how it worked out, <laughs> but certainly in university, he influenced me completely. Got me involved. Did you in did hockey. you know what an athletic therapist was before you? Not really. I mean, no. I knew what a physio was because I had been injured and and you know, but but not really. I mean, and I I got to experience it because I would shadow some people in that year with Glenn and whatnot. Um, so I started to see what it, what you could do. Um, but yeah, I I got involved right away. I started shadowing uh, somebody that was working with a hockey team and. In fact, again, I got thrust into it because the guy that was working with the hockey team had been working with them for two years. And then I was just kind of shadowing him. I didn't know anything. And I was shadowing him. And by Christmas and midway through the season, they they voted him off the team and put me on. And I'm like, but I don't know anything. Like, I really, they're, they're like, it's fine. <laughs> we don't care. We just don't like it. <laughs> just sit around and learn. I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I was kind of thrust into it and, uh, I started to get a lot more serious at that point. So, well, you, you were kind of in Manitoba, I would say at the Zenith of athletic therapies. There's, there's a whole bunch of characters from Manitoba that were kind of the driving force and even the profession in Canada as it was like Glenn and Trunzo and all these yeah. different guys, Rizzuto and all these different guys out there. Mm-hmm. You, you kind of came along as a student in that group and were influenced by this group, but talk a little bit about that group. Like what was it, what was it in the water at the time that was driving the manifestation of athletic therapy in Manitoba so, so significantly at that time? Well, I think Gord, Ma- it started with Gord Mackey, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, he um, was an ATPT, had a really good following, and Glenn, I think, was part of that following. And then Glenn took took over, and um, Glenn just, you know, he he's a leader, and he really pushed the agenda. And, you know, I, I think he influenced a lot of athletic therapy in the province, um, and he had a lot of great help with people like you say, Ben. Ben was one of his students, I think, but he was close to age and ben, as, with Ben, uh, as well as Phil even. And again, you know, great leaders often clash. They have great ideas. They don't always agree on things, but but that, that created kind of this push to move forward. And so, yeah, I would agree. There were some really good influences and I, I got to learn from all of them, which is great. Mm-hmm. Ben less so, cause he was at U of W he moved, ended up moving to U of W, but Phil Rizzuto had a major influence in my life about how I treat and still my philosophy. And, and, you know, what, again, I think you and I've had this conversation before it's similar philosophy to you around the reconditioning piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and what kind of gives us the foundation as athletic therapists. So, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and then and there, there was a group of six of us of grad students. We ended up going to grad school together. Jason Peeler being one of them, um, and yeah, we and, and we of course joined the education committee with you, 
in the uh, mid nineties. And what a, what a gong show that was. It was so good though. <laughs> Developmentally, it was so awesome. I remember you, there's a quote that you had at one point, you said in front of other people, well, we have this, we have two big mouths, me and Peeler, and then a baby big mouth, LaFave. <laughs> we got to let the other people on the committee talk. So we had Jimmy Bellata and Mariana Barapalata and we're like, we have to be quiet guys. Let these, they have ideas too. <laughs> Anyways. Good times. <laughs> yeah, if Peeler and I could take up some space, and then you would in- interject every so often to kind of cut the <laughs> cut the stress. But yeah, that was a beautiful time. I look back on it. I, I want to segue back to that in a second. But I want to before I go off of some of these legends. Like, what did you learn from Glenn? Like, what what if you th- could dial it down to one character trait or one element that really rubbed off on you? What did you learn from him? Well. Uh- I'm uh, his doggedness, like, mm. my goodness, he just never quits or lets go. Like, you know, I, I don't know how old he is, but he's, I, I know he's close to retirement age and, um, and, and he's still pushing hard for the profession. And so he just has this unrelenting energy to push forward for a profession and make it grow from, from, you know, basically nothing. When you look back at the history of when he started as uh, one of the first groups that go th- that went through the certification process, um, it's amazing that he's still pushing so hard and has the energy to do it. It's just wild. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, it's super impressive and I'm not sure I have the same level of stamina that he does to continue mm. to go to my seventies, time will tell. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I, uh, he, he is, he is an impressive individual and, um, I've learned so many lessons from him. And of course, you know, we don't always agree. Like, so Glenn mm-hmm. and I are mm-hmm. both very opinionated and I think we have a real respect for each other though. And so sometimes we can agree to not agree and Mm -hmm. um but we're very respectful about listening to each other and you know and and of course he was my master's supervisor too so Mm. at that point there was a power relationship so i had no choice my wife even said like jump through the hoops he says Mm. do this do it i'm like (laughs) okay so i did it and and i learned a lot from him uh because of it so well i want to actually unpack that a little bit because we're in a time now where you know, with Twitter and the internet and people kind of throwing mud at each other and not really listening very well. Um, you know, what you just talked about was this honest dichotomy of opinion that people could actually express what it was they believed or, or thought, but the other person would respectfully listen and then fire back. And I remember some heavy conversations in our meetings, heavy conversations yeah. with guys like Phil, who were, you know, Phil's a fiery human being, et cetera. What, you know, when you look back at that and then you look forward to now, what, what, what have we lost or what are, what do we need to get back to get back to that kind of civil dialogue in your opinion? Yeah, it's, that's a, that's a hard question. I, uh, well, clearly communication and listening needs to be a significant part of it, as you said. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you're doing most of the talking now, I guess I I'm doing most of the talking here, but that's the point today. But, Mm. but I would say, you know, in general, in conversations, we need to be doing way more listening. Um, I, I, I value the communication, the soft skills side of things so much now that um, it's become like half of my workload for teaching these days is related to soft skill development. And, and I've 
not really, I don't think I've really appreciated how important it was until the last probably 10 years. Mm. Um, and you know, and I have some influences in my educational life, like Dexter Nelson, as an example. And, you know, he would tell me that early on in my career, I'd be like, Oh, whatever, you know, we need to teach more people how to assess knees. And, and he'd be like, no, that's not really what makes the world go around. <laughs> um, and so there's, a, he had a lot of wisdom. Um, and, and I guess I'm just coming around to it slowly, but yeah, I, I, I think part of the problem is that we all think we know how to communicate and because we can talk. It's kind of like nutrition. Everybody eats, so therefore they're a nutrition expert. Eh, right. Maybe not, you know? Mm-hmm. So just because you do it doesn't mean that you're good at it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's a lifelong journey. I still continue to read all the time about how to be a better communicator. And I'm, not, I'm still not good at it. Like, you know, I'm still trying to work at it. So listening, though, is a key component to it. No question. Mm-hmm. And so... How do you get there? Um, I think part of it's a maturation process, just natural maturation process for younger people. Um, yeah, maybe maybe Twitter and other forms of social media influence that. But, you know, I don't want to be an old fuddy-duddy either. We're like, the truth mm-hmm. is it's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So how do we work with it and still continue to listen to people and be respectful? I mean, that's what it comes down to as well. Have enough respect for the person across from you that you just listen. So. Who who have been some of the influencers in your career around that that subject matter around communicate like who have been people in your sphere of influence that you feel were really strong communicators that you've learned from? Well, no question, Dexter Nelson. Like mm. uh, I don't, you, you've been in meetings with Dexter yourself, Scott, and and you, you know he's got this calming influence. He listens. He has paper and pen. He takes notes. And he's patient enough to listen, put down his thoughts, and not interrupt people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a skill that I, again, I'm still trying to learn and trying to go through. But he was probably one of the best listeners. And then, you know, he's quiet. Most people will see him as quiet. And then all of a sudden, he speaks, and you're like, wow, he was really paying attention. He mm-hmm. was listening. He he definitely influenced he influenced me in a huge developmental time of my life. Um, you know, from basically twenty five till till he retired. He's still influenced. I still connect with him. But uh, you know, for probably twenty five years, he influenced me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, it, he that's his strength. And and you know, I would say Glenn on the other hand, you know, his strength is he's fiery. And Phil is fiery. And you know, they probably didn't listen as much as, as Dexter did. So it takes a whole, a whole bunch, a whole bunch right. of those skills. So, right. yeah. So what's the instigate you, you're, you're working with the blue bombers and then you're working, were you working in the clinic uh, with Rizzuto and yeah. all those guys, uh, yeah. Stan and stuff for a while. And Dan Zumlach, Bruce Marshall. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And well, and I mostly, I mostly work with Stan, not, uh, uh, in the clinic side. And then there was the reconditioning side, a totally different floor. And so Maggie Kays was a uh, full-time uh, AT that Phil had just hired. Phil had a mm. whole system in place. And I still remember moving him from his old clinic to his new clinic and lifting all those weight machines and everything else. But he had this fantastic model that, you know, I'm not seeing too many people reproduce um, from a business model perspective. Um, and so, yeah, he had a whole top floor at the time of the Pan Am clinic. Um, and everybody would send their patients to fill for the reconditioning part. Um, 
and and of course he had tables set up and it was awesome. So I learned I started as a student. I learned under him. I got certified. I still continued to work one or two days there, and then I worked. And then he had me open a clinic in uh, Portage the Prairie, which was about forty five minutes away from Winnipeg, and I would commute. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, three days a week. And I started it in a gym, actually. Mm-hmm. So the gym had some extra space. And so I started with one table, uh, no modalities, because, you know, that's not the way we did did stuff um, from a reconditioning perspective. I think I had a hot pack maybe or something like that. Uh, n- nothing to speak of. And yeah, so he totally influenced me um, in in my philosophy and how I treated people. Um, and ironically, I would say, you know, we, we were... F- fighting hard as ATs at the time to introduce more modalities and, and into our practice. And, you know, today, you know, 30 years later, that's we're, we're fighting to get away from that stuff. And, you mm-hmm. know, even the, even the PTs with their, with, they, they have a, uh, in the States, uh, they have a uh, position statement, I think that says they don't actually want people to be using modalities they want them to be using exercise and it's like yeah like exercise is the best form now granted it's not that simple i don't think but uh you know you add a little bit of modality a little bit of manual therapy and a little bit of and a lot of exercise and i think that's the definitely the way to go that's why we of course love your your system yeah at mount (laughs) royal so well i i with regard to Phil, um, both of us knew him for a while, and um, I have to admit that I was, I, I don't like the word disappointment, but I was challenged by his decision to get out of the industry. How did it affect you? Because he was a guy I looked up to quite a bit around exactly the the commentary you make. Did it, did it affect your trajectory your decision making around what you were going to do at all or no well no not really because at one point i had just finished you know i was working for phil when i when i was just working through the end of my master's degree i was certified but i was working for him and then at at that exact moment i had a fork in the road where i needed to choose like i got kind of an offer to go to the moncton jets which was the um minor league affiliate with the jets or I got this job offer at Mount Royal with Dexter. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so I, you know, at that point, De- that, this is where Glenn Bergeron said, did you, are you doing a master's degree to sit on a bus? Why would you want to go and work in pro sports? <laughs> so, so I said, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I'm going to Calgary. And, and at that point, Phil and I had gone in different directions because I had to basically quit and give up that practice. And so him and I kind of lost touch for a bit. Ironically, I saw him in the airport coming back from Italy uh, a couple of years ago when he could still travel. Um, and I saw him in the Calgary airport and we were on the same plane. And, you know, it was one of those you know, long flights from Europe. And we got off and we were all bushy eyed. And, you know, he said, are you Mark? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyways, he didn't barely recognize me because I don't have any hair anymore. Um, but I hadn't seen him in years. So, wow. so yeah, he influenced me early on. And then I went off to Mount Royal and, and mm. that's where most of my, uh, yeah, where I kind of lost touch with him for a while. So I like that comment you said about Glenn saying, you know, you get doing your master's setting up. Do you ever wonder what, what life would have been like if you had made the other turn? Yeah, I yeah, I I wondered about it a lot to be honest because I really love working with teams. Mm. I uh, 
I got to work with hockey and uh, Wayne Fleming uh, was a coach that he was in Manitoba. And then of course he went to the NHL and I worked he, with Wayne in Long Island actually. Did you? Yeah. yeah. So I really liked Wayne. He was a grumpy codger. We got along great. Um, <laughs> but uh, he really made me like working in hockey, in the hockey world. So, uh, you know, I've had a couple of opportunities to work in pro sports Um and I've chosen not to for a whole host of reasons. You know, my my time with the Blue Bombers, uh, you know, there were some, I'll say, questionable ethical things around drug use um, that we would turn a blind eye to that uh, I was not interested in participating in. Uh, if you've seen the movie Any the Any, Any Given Sunday, it's a bl- little bit like that. Um, so I was not that interested in. <laughs> in doing that kind of work. Um, if that's, if I had to compromise principles at all. Um, but I do love sport. I love the intensity. I love, um, like I'm an intense person. I have high expectations. Usually people in pro sports are the same. They have very high expectations. So, you know, so that side of it, I love, but, uh, the other piece is I wanted a family and, Mm. you know, I, prioritized spending a lot of time with my family. I got to coach my kids. I got to be there every single soccer game that they played or whatever. So, you know, uh, I think you make choices in life and uh, I'm, I never look back and go, I wish I would have. I did it with eyes wide open. I had opportunities. I made choices. So Mm -hmm. uh, I don't regret it at all. Where were you when you had your first daughter? Were you still in um, Manitoba or you'd moved to Alberta? Well, she was conceived in Manitoba. (laughs) (laughs) Her father's American. She was conceived in Manitoba and born in Alberta. That's good. That's right. That's right. (laughs) My wife was finishing her PhD, the poor thing. And uh, we were just in the middle of transition from moving from Winnipeg to Calgary. And, and uh, yeah, she had to take a break on our first kid. And, uh, and then continued to finish her PhD between after the first kid and then got pregnant with the second one. And it was like, took another break. <laughs> like she's an amazing person. Uh, and, and then got through it all, um, you know, basically finished her PhD uh, from 9 PM till 2 AM while kids were sleeping. So yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. But yeah, all of the, all my kids were born and bred in Calgary. So. Well, talk about that relationship a little bit. Like, um, obviously, you fell in love with this lady. She's meant the world to you for a long time. What is she the yin to your yang? What does she provide you as a human spirit that uh, allows you to thrive or to be who you want to be? Well, she uh, she's much more methodical, thoughtful, caring. Uh, gives me a lot of influence in that way um you know patient she's very patient with me because again i uh tend to be a little bit adhd i like to go 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 and she's a little more thoughtful and reflective and so yeah i think uh she's influenced me everywhere in my career supported me in my academic career uh my my kids joke around that that she's smarter than me because she got her phd before i did I'm like, yeah, well, I I don't disagree with that. Actually, she is smarter than me. So anyways, she, she was, she's been a huge supporter of me. And so, 
you know, it's nice to see her. She's going through and she's having huge success herself in uh, academia right now. And, uh, you know, she, again, she spent about 10 years kind of on and off at home for the most part with our kids early years. And so she made those sacrifices. Um, and then, you know, that pushed her career aspirations back a little bit, but I think she's doing fantastic work nowadays. So, and, and, it really surpassed me, surpassed me as a mm-hmm. researcher, and she's uh, had huge successes at Mount Royal. So, what did you what did you fall in love with in the profession? Like you, we you know we kind of segued past your sort of choosing to get into it, but what do you what do you really love about what it is you do? Yeah, I, I would say well, first of all, I, I have a lot of care and empathy when people get hurt. Um, I think I was influenced early in my life. My father had. Um, uh, a disabled sister. And so he often had uh, a lot of caring for uh, people that needed help. And so, and I had, I, I had an influence of the church early on too. And my dad was uh, a big church person. And so, you know, big, some of the teachings of the church, despite what's going on in the news these days, it's not all negative. Not that I'm a very religious person, but uh, these days, but, but certainly it had some influences on me uh, early on around caring for people that can't help themselves. And so mm. caring for people is one of them, but uh, I also am very analytical. So, mm. you know, every single injury is a problem and a problem to be solved. And so you combine those two things, problem solving and analytics and, and caring about people and trying to help them reach goals that they want to reach. Um, that was, that was certainly something that drew for me. So obviously you, you, you flow into an academic sort of direction. So I guess that was the pivot I wanted to get from you is if you're falling in love sort of tangibly with the tangible you know, connection to helping people, et cetera, mm-hmm. why does academia become your gravitational pull for how you express yourself professionally? Um, is it because you want to teach, share, uh, like where, where does that come from inside you? Well, uh, honestly, I was the head therapist at, at, at Mount Royal and that's what I wanted to do and be because it was very, like you say, very tangible. And I wasn't, I'm a very reluctant academic, uh, to mm. be honest. Um, I got involved, I was still only had a master's degree at the time in the early, so I would say mid nineties. And, and, uh, I, I started working with Dale Butterwick as well at UFC. And so, Dale got me involved in some of the academic work through his connections at the University of Calgary. And um, so he was another big influence in my life from an academia perspective. Um, but we did a project uh, where we were uh, we were talking about sport medicine and, and athletic therapy within the realm of sport medicine. And we interviewed a person named Cy Frank, uh, who is, a, I would say, a somewhat famous, uh, he's passed now, but uh Sai was a pretty famous orthopedic surgeon in Canada and influenced the way orthopedic surgery has moved in the in Canada. And so his advice to us, like this is off camera when he talked to Dale and I, he, he looked us in the eyes and he said, you want to make a difference in this world? All that, you can do all the care you want in the world for athletes and patients and everything else. And he says, I do it because I enjoy it. But if you want to make a difference, the way to do it is through research your profession needs to get into research. And, and I was like, yeah, maybe, you know, at the time I was, you know, in my twenties, late twenties. And I was like, maybe, I'm not sure who this guy is. And I, it's only back when I look backwards and I go, wow, he was 
some pretty profound advice. And so he pushed Dale and Dale pushed me and we did a lot, started doing a lot of research in the nineties when I didn't have to do research. And so, you know, at the time I, I, again, I only had a master's. I started doing my PhD in neuroscience and anatomy. Um, but I changed total direction. Uh, after that, I started getting influenced by Mount Royal, which is a teaching institution. And I ended up doing a PhD in medical education, essentially. So, cause I wanted to know about how to teach people ultimately. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, I've got a real passion for how do you teach people? And, um, it's a re- again another challenge from uh, you know analytics. Like how, you look at people, you say how, what's the best system that they need to know how to learn, um, and it's not an easy thing. Everybody needs different things. So um, I, I yeah, and I've been doing research in that area, and then also clinometric stuff around with orthopedic surgeons. And so I've I've been you know people like Nick Matotti uh, from the University of Calgary influenced me from a research perspective. Um, who is one of actually Cy Frank's protégés, and then Lori Heemstra, another one that's a protégé of Dr. Matadi and and Dr. Frank. So, uh, you know, they've been those orthopods have been tremendous influences in my life, um, and they do like they're they're impressive because they do so much research, and their jobs don't really rely on it, and they really emulate what that Cy Frank comment of is: if you want to make a difference in the world, make sure that there's research involved. So. You know, I, I know that the world's more complicated than that, than, you know, just doing evidence-informed practice. But, uh, you know, I think you need evidence to be able to do what you do. Awesome. Um, on a different segue, which I might come back to that one a little bit in the same way, but you go there and you run into this this legend, Dexter Nelson, and he's a rodeo maniac. Is yeah. he the guy and Dale Butterwick as well? So are they the guys who influence you to eventually wear a Stetson and uh, and, yeah. and the cowboy shirt and do yeah. all the stuff that you do now that has become sort of your sport? When you talk about you love sport, that became your your sport of context for, for athletic therapy, correct? It did, yeah, totally. I, I got involved early on and, you know, Dexter and Dale were the only ones kind of around at the time now the team has grown to you know 50 or more practitioners it's uh being led by brandon tommy um the executive director who was one of our grads and it's like just grown to this massive thing now but at the time it was just kind of the three of us going around from rodeo to rodeo we had spent our summers doing it so you know it was a way to make money keep your clinical practice busy in your, you know, your psychomotor skills active in the summertime when you weren't teaching. And so that's what I would spend my summers essentially doing that. I spend less of that time doing it now. Um, as I got older, I've done less and less rodeo um, just because, you know, it's, I need a break for, rather than go 12 months a year. I know the importance of a break. So yeah, Dex and Dale got me involved in rodeo. Uh, I am totally a city slicker. They had to teach me all about the culture uh, both of them grew up rurally in Alberta, so they knew about the culture, but I didn't. Um, so yeah, tell me so. a good story about that, because that's, I think, you know, to, I want to pivot into and unpack this whole idea of, you know, EQ. And so in the beginning, when you have no EQ in the in the culture of the uh, experiment, what, what smacks you in the face uh, immediately? Well, the biggest one is shut up and listen. Like, <laughs> don't talk around cowboys unless you actually know what you're talking about. And so, I mean, they're, they're really quiet and then they come up with some stuff that you go, Oh, but they, they taught, like, I've learned more from cowboys about how to do a tape job 
than I could have learned from anybody, any athletic therapist ever. Wow. Because they used to tape themselves. Um, mm. so yeah, when when nobody was there, they would tape themselves, or they would they'd actually give you honest, direct feedback. That that strip's too tight. Like, no, you got to do it this way. And okay, listen. You know, it's one of those. Listen to them. They actually know a lot. Um, but yeah, I would say listening. Uh, the the whole like Dexter used to say, you got to put your costume on. Like, you have to wear the outfit. Hmm. So, you know, the cowboy hat. Uh, and so I literally had one of my um, one of my students uh, brought me to a Western store early on in my life and had to teach me about, you know, you got to wear these jeans with this kind of belt and this kind of hat. And 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 you have to look the part to be able to be the part. And, mm-hmm. you know, people could tell that I you know, once you look the part, then you start to get a little more respect. Um, but then you have to listen. And then if you listen well enough to people and, you know, of course I had all the athletic therapy knowledge and that's what they really wanted. And so that's when they really started to respect you. Um, so yeah, it was good. I, I, I've, you know, I haven't, I've kind of taken a hiatus since the, uh, since COVID hit, uh, last year, there was no rodeo at all this year. There's been a bit of rodeo, but they're slowly ramping it back up. I, chose not to be in quarantine with international cowboys this time of year <laughs> ironically that we're in the middle of the calgary stampede and mm-hmm. i'm not there it's you know i was there for probably 25 years straight um yeah in the last two years i've just kind of said no well last year there was nothing and then this year they're doing it but it's very restricted so yeah it's been a great influence in my life it's taught me so much about the human body what it can take um these they're salt of the earth kind of people. They don't do it for the money necessarily, although some do for sure. Um, they do it because they love it. It's part of their culture. Um, so yeah, it's had a huge influence in my life. Wow. And you, you had mentioned Dexter before, but in terms of the academic side of things, like what was, what was his, his influence in your, your professorship, like what did you take away from him as you went into becoming sort of more a professor uh, and how did it describe you in some sense? Well, he, um, like he was the first, he, he started the athletic therapy program at Mount Royal. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he left UFC to go to Mount Royal to start a program. And so the only reason why we have a program today is because of him. So he's got a great academic leader. He's a great leader, but a great academic leader as well. Um, and then he, um, you know, he really, really was a, a strong educator too. Him and I, in our early years, would have so many great discussions around philosophy and what ways to teach and different techniques, and and it was fantastic. You know, the water cooler kind of conversations, We'd pop into his office, go for coffee. It was, I, you know, I couldn't have asked for better mentors. Him, even Dale too, from a from a. Dale was more of the researcher. Dale Dexter was more of the educator. Um, so, but both of them were fantastic influences in my life. And as you're as you're there, you're obviously uh, you and Lynn are um, firing out little girls. So you, you never <laughs> you never you never pull the little boy out of the closet. So you got three nope. of them. Yeah. Um, how how does being a dad of three girls? Um, affect you or shape you as a person quick break here and we'll be back in a couple of seconds with our podcast guest 
I've often been asked, how do I do what you do? What books or courses should I take? And for a long time, I had no real answer to that question. Delivering the concepts and practices we now call reconditioning was this compilation of so many ideas, concepts, methods, and strategies. But seven years ago, Jamie and I set out to answer that very question by creating one systematic process that would help you bring it all together and supercharge the skills and systems you already know. You see, reconditioning is not a about excluding anything. No, it's about being inclusive, holistic, proactive, and curious. It's about having an operating system that grows with you and supports you in your human performance practice. We want you to be the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with so you can determine your value and explore the possibilities of success. For more information about becoming a reconditioning professional today, head over to www.reconditioninghq.com and download the free video explaining our powerful five R's practice for improving mobility. A new era of performance training is upon us. Maximize your isometric endurance, strength, and functional performance with the all-new Isofit MSK. No matter what your sport, Isofit will help best prepare your body to tolerate the forces associated with it. This not only reduces your chances of sustaining career-limiting injury, it will also enhance your ability to perform at your highest level. I really like what Brad Thorpe and Isofit are doing, and I encourage you to learn more about their mission by visiting www.isofit, that's isofit with a P-H, msk.ca, so isofitmsk.ca today. And remember to use the discount code, leave your mark, three separate words to save $500 off your Isofit MSK purchase. Matrix Fitness is about performance innovation, and I'm proud to have them with me on the Leave Your Mark podcast. They recently named my good friend and awesome performance coach, Mark Fitzgerald, as their head of performance team, which is a bold statement for anyone who wants to know they're working with the best. Matrix has all kinds of interesting lines of equipment. The Matrix Glute Trainer addresses the discomfort, inefficiency, and danger of working with loaded barbell during hip thrusts. The Matrix Glute Trainer accommodates resistant bands and weight resistance and is customizable to different body types and sizes endorsed by many and comes at a cost below others on the market the matrix s drive is a sprint performance treadmill that supports sprint training resisted sled pulls and pushes all on the frame of a standard treadmill the seven feet by three foot footprint of the S-Drive is non-motorized and is perfect for coaches who do not have access to a track or want to provide coaching in real time with the athlete. The non-motorized feature and flexibility in a simple machine keeps benefits high and investment low. For more information or a free consult, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA today. We're back. Enjoy the rest of this podcast. Well, I, you know, I, I don't know that it would be any different with boys, but people tell me it would be harder. <laughs> I'm like, well, it seemed pretty hard to me. All three of them, you know, it's very busy household. Um, it, it's been great. It shaped me to be uh, a little more sensitive. Bonnie Souter, another good friend of mine from UFC, said to me, God gave me girls on purpose because, you know, I needed to make me a little more sensitive to, to, to women. And I'm like, okay, well, fair enough, whatever. Uh, but they're they're they've had a great influence on me. They've taught me so much too. Uh, kids teach you so many lessons, whether you know they're two or or twelve or twenty two. Uh, they always have lessons that they teach you. So if mm-hmm. you're if you're humble enough to listen to them, so yeah, it's they've inter- taught me a lot. 
Oh, interesting off of a side segue to that. And I'm kind of interested if you've, if you've figured out why, but when we started in this business, I would say it was a little man centric and it's changed actually to become pretty woman centric. And what would you say was the influencing um, or dr- driver around that? And, and it seems to not be really abating too much. So in our professions. Yeah. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You no would think question. it would be the opposite of that in some sense, but it doesn't seem to be. Yeah, I would say that the thing that drew people to our profession early days were um, professional sport, and that which was very male dominant at the time, and probably still is today from a therapist perspective. Um, and over time, as our profession grew, my sense is that more people started to go into the community, and that's where um, you got to access uh, popu- female population. Um, and they want to have female therapists, potentially. Um, females tend to be more empathetic. I mean, I, I know that's a huge stereotype, but generally they, they are more empathetic to um, to their patients. And so, yeah, I would say they're drawn to a caring profession more so than men, and it needs to be more of a caring profession, whereas in pro sports it was not. it wasn't seen as a caring profession necessarily early days. I think you need to have caring, but... Um, to get to pro sports, you have to be somewhat hardened too. So, um, you know, but, but I think the caring part of it, uh, is a huge influence and women tend to be, again, I get that I probably going to get in trouble for stereotyping, but I find women to be more caregivers, uh, stronger caregivers naturally than, than some men. And so, and I've definitely seen that kind of trend from a statistic perspective in our program where, you know, you get maybe in a class of 30, you might get five, five males and the rest are women. So, hmm. Well, that's, a, I think, a good pivot for this EQ piece that you were talking about before. So, you know, not, not unlike yourself in the early days, you know, your sensitivity was that you had to learn all these skills and, you know, every tape job and every lockman and drawer test and all the other stuff. And you had to know McGee from front to back. And now, you know, you recognize that at the end of the day, it's about this relational context of how you connect with the, the patient or the client um, or the team or the coach or what have you. So has that changed the way you teach now or the way you advise in terms of with your, the young people that come to you in terms of recognizing, yeah, there are a series of skills that they need to know, understand, but how do you get that message across? And um, what do you, you know, for the listener, if there's some young people out there listening and they could be in any area of human performance, but like what, what are those tangible EQ skills that you, you think people should be sharpening earlier in their career than maybe they do? Yeah. Well, for me, it's a huge, uh, area of interest. Uh, I'm actually studying it too. Um, and you know, I'm trying to push for competency-based education. And, and I think the cool part about competency-based education is that it takes those hard skills you talked about and, you know, use the word McGee. So we'll say knowing McGee essentially front to back, but then taking all those soft skills, um, and making this confluence of those two things. And so, Real successful people um, have, for sure, a solid foundation of technical skill. That's just a natural. And so it's the soft skill piece that makes people successful ultimately, though. And so, you know, I'm lucky enough to teach students early on in their program, in the second year of their program, where we teach them these soft skills. And we've done some research around which are the most important soft skills. We actually... 
uh, surveyed all of our membership, and then we broke it down into a number of soft skills. Communication being the number one, um, the number one soft skill, and it kind of weaves its way throughout most of the other soft skills, whether it be empathy, critical thinking. Even you might think, well, why do you need good communication skills for critical thinking? It's a huge part of literacy and whatnot. So. Um, Communication, collaboration, like, again, communication becomes a critical part of collaboration as well. All of these soft skills, though, um, I get to teach them early on and tell students to focus on them. And most of them in their second year don't appreciate it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. They kind of go, listen, hey, I know how to communicate. Hey, I've worked in teams. I know how to collaborate with people. Um But then they end up learning a lot, I think. And then they go through our last two years of our program. And I get them in the last year of the program where they start to bring all of those soft skills back together with the hard skills again. And so it is about creating kind of that confluence, the perfect mixture of both soft and hard skill. And again, we have people that are super strong from a technical perspective. um, And and they'll do okay. They'll just okay. And those that are but those are the ones that can communicate well, the ones that have good empathy and good uh, collaboration skills. Those are the ones that are ultimately going to be really successful, I think. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. I just had um, a guy named Rich Davini on the podcast a little bit ago who is a Navy SEAL commander, and he wrote a book called Attributes. And he talks fundamentally about these, you know, the attributes versus skills, skills being something that you can actually teach from a, you know, curriculum-based standpoint or didactic perspective versus attributes are kind of innate that you also sort of forge over time, whether that's grit or, you know, forms of leadership, et cetera. And, you know, do you you see, you know, when you see the, the young person who comes in, and I always found this interesting was there was, there were the people who came in at the beginning of the program and you kind of pegged them as being potential successful ATs and they don't end up being the successful ones because maybe they're externally happy-go-lucky and want to, you know, they're, they're driven to do stuff, but there's something missing about them that these sort of quiet, methodical people who kind of have a different sort of script end up being the ones who kind of come around to it. So I'm kind of curious over time, if you've started to recognize, uh, a set of attributes that make a really great athletic therapist that, you know, that are innate to people and, 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 or need to be forged and worked on while they're in school. Well, I I can tell you that having an open mindset is a critical variable. If you walk in close-minded, think, you know, everything feel like, you know, knowledge is power. You learn from a book. So therefore, you know, um, I think you're missing out. And so if you have an open mindset going into learning and trying to, and a a sense of curiosity is the other piece. Curiosity is such a critical variable. Like you want to learn and know and understand and, and kind of understand what the, how the world uh, ticks. So, uh, you know, I say curiosity for sure. And then, yeah, having an open mindset and then, because if you have an open mindset and you're willing to learn, you can learn all of like all of those skills. So all of those mm. soft skills, some people would say, well, you know, I'm not very empathetic. Well, em- empathy is actually a skill that you can be taught. And people say, well, no, no, like I think you either have it or you don't. No, not true. Look at all the empathy experts. They'll tell you that there are ways to, you know, to, to approach the situation to make sure that you can approach it in a more empathetic way. And so 
you know, I think our our errors in our curriculum design, frankly, early on, early days, was that we we didn't have any of those courses, and mm-hmm. and you know, I would like to think that I was open enough to listen to our our practicum agencies and our supervisors and our super you know supervisory athletic therapists at the time, um, and we call them clinical educators now, that they they're the ones that said these people are failing miserably in this area. We need courses in this. And so we ended up making changes where we actually formally introduced courses in things that you think are, everybody thinks that are common sense. And mm. it's not common sense. Mm-hmm. We need to teach those things. It's kind of, you know, I, I go back to that. If everybody, just because everybody eats doesn't make them a nutrition expert. You may be doing something blindly, unknowingly. And so, yeah, I, I would say, we need to be able to teach people those skills. And, and most mm-hmm. of these things are skills if you have an open mindset and if you have a level of curiosity and desire to learn. Nice. I started off by mentioning that you were recently inducted into the Canadian Athletic Therapist Hall of Fame. Like, what did, the, what did, what did that mean to you? And what, what, uh, what was sort of your reflection point around that? Well, I, was, I have to say I was super surprised. Um, I, I don't know if if you've heard the story, but no. I was actually in Greece. Um, I was on sabbatical, and I found out about this in 2019. And mm. Richard Demont, uh, who, who one of my nominators, um, was, said, "Oh yeah, you're coming back, aren't you, for the conference?" And I said, <laughs> "No, why? I'm in Greece. <laughs> I was presenting some research actually related to the new competency CETA competency framework and." And he said, well, you know, we nominated you for the Hall of Fame. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. That... So I was overwhelmed for, uh, and, and shocked, actually, um, and, and super humbled by, you know, the, the kind words that they all said to me and, and for my nomination. And so uh, it means a tremendous amount. I care a lot about the athletic therapy profession. Uh, I've spent a lot of my life trying to build different things within the athletic therapy profession and particularly around the educational piece of that. Um, so it's, it's meant a lot. Um, and again, obviously it was a shock because, <laughs> and I, and I just recently accepted it, but I, you know, in 2019, I wasn't there in, uh, 2020 they there was no conference and mm-hmm. in 2021 they said forget it let's just do it virtually so <laughs> you never know when we're going to get back face to face so you know it was two years after the actual induction so but it's uh, it's meant uh, a lot uh you know i i've met so many great people in our profession you're you're one of them you know i mean like you t- we talked about our early days in the education committee and i still talk about that to other people that are coming onto committees about you know our our how as a team we were working with the education committee. So yeah, I, I have, I've met so many great people in the profession and it's uh, very humbling because I know a lot of good people. Like I look at the list of people in the hall of fame and I have so much respect for, for everybody on that list, uh, mm. you know? And, and so I, I was influenced by some of those people, Phil, Glenn, Dale, uh, Dexter, you know, those people all had a direct influence in me. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, it, and I have tremendous respect for them. So it means a lot. Well, you talked about, you know, you're one of your passions and your loves athletic as athletic therapy. What, what do you see the future of the profession and how do you see it getting stronger in your viewpoint? Um, well, I would say that we've, you know, uh, I'm a believer in looking at history. And so 
a lot of my papers, I look backwards and I try to see where we've come from as a profession. And so, you know, if you look at certain milestones, one of the milestones that grew our profession was the accreditation process that happened in 1999. And we're still continuing to grow programs today, which means that I think we'll continue to grow the profession. I think we have to um, continue to wrestle with our identity and who are we? What do we do? Um, I know you and I have had this conversation many times, but you know, one of the foundations of what made us unique is that we did exercise and physical activity as mm-hmm. a primary foundation of what we do. Um, I think we need to continue to ask that question. Is this still our foundation? If it's not, who are we? I, mm-hmm. I think absolutely it is. And so, you know, that's why we need to have people like yourself, you know, teaching the courses that take, you know, basic strength training and conditioning at a very basic level. And then you apply that in a very advanced and more complicated and analytical way. Um, I, I think it's so such a critical set of skills that you need as a, as a profession. So I'd like to see us obviously move in that direction even more as we go on. Um, you know, the, the issue for us as a profession, though, is lots of people see the manual therapy skills um, as, as the end-all and be-all. And, and, and again, I think they're, they're really good, and some of them are fantastic and really complementary, but I still believe that the foundation should be exercise. And so as long as we know our identity, I think there's a bright future. Um, I think there are some complicated pieces with um, regulation that we need to work through around our scope of practice and that will be directly influenced again by who we are and what we do. So mm-hmm. if we say we're that exercise is part of our foundation that makes us a unique proposition relative to the other healthcare practitioners and you know we're always going to overlap with our scope of practice with other other healthcare professionals. So, you know, continue to have discussions with those uh professionals as well to make mm-hmm. sure that they can say, you know, that we work together so we can work together or we have a overlapping scope of practice. That's all fine to me. Mm. So one day you will perish from this earth, hopefully not for a long time, but how, how would you like to be remembered for the life you lived? Well, uh, I, I first and foremost want to be known as a, a good father and a good husband. Um, I, I've, had been so blessed to have such a wonderful family. And, and, uh, I would like to think that that's a, a, a primary piece of my, my past. Um, you know, athletic therapy, I get, obviously I get, a, I get a lot of, uh, gusto out of doing athletic therapy related things, education, research, but, uh, I'm not sure that's what I want to be known for necessarily. It, it would be, that's fine. But, but again, I think for me, uh, family is pretty critical. So nice. If you were to run into um, the kid who didn't know which direction to go in and what he was going to do, what would you say to that kid today? Uh, you mean me? You. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that kid. Kid, kid Lefebvre. Yeah. I have kid trouble Lefebvre. envisioning me as a kid. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm. I'm not sure I would change much. Um, I. I have an awesome 
life an awesome job uh you know, with, as an academic, it's not always perfect being a public servant, <laughs> you know, being in Alberta and being a public servant isn't always the best, uh, but you know, it, it works. And so, um, I've managed to carve out a, a, a nice, a, a nice enough career. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I believe in service of people. And so where you, how you do that service to people, uh, you know, it, right now I do it with students. I do it with patients. Um, it, it could be anywhere, any type of service with people. And, and I think I would have been happy. So, um, awesome. yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for your time, sir. It's been uh, a blessing to sit and chat with you for an hour and catch up again about the life of Mark. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the time. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>